I mean, the idea when Bitcoin first came along was that you were taking the power away from the governments and the banks. Where there were internal conflicts in those countries uh, and the international community decided to help. And I can remember them coming back very thin and yellow and very weary of fighting. Welcome to episode six of the Dyson House podcast from the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I'm your host, Cameron Christie. This week, I'm joined by Jean Dunn, currently Director Indo-Pacific of the Centre for Political and Diplomatic Studies and formerly Australia's Ambassador to Turkey and Azerbaijan, Lebanon, Poland, the Czech Republic, Lithuania and Ukraine. In 2016, Jean was presented with the Public Service Medal by the Governor-General for her services during the aftermath of the downing of Malaysia Airlines Flight MH17 in 2014. Today, we discuss what it takes to be a good diplomat and the MH17 crisis. Well, Jean Dunn, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be talking to you, Cameron. Thank you. Looking forward to that discussion. Um, so perhaps to start, if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your work. Well, um, I spent a career in the Department of Trade, and then when it merged with the Department of Foreign Affairs, I was part of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I worked on, I was a trade negotiator, a senior trade negotiator, and I was an ambassador in three countries, and uh, I served in three other places. In uh, So I could start where I served. First, it was in Geneva, GATT, when I was worked on trade negotiations to finish the Uruguay round of trade negotiations. Then I went to Washington and worked on uh, trade policy issues. I then uh, I came back to Canberra in between those times. I then went to Seoul as deputy head of mission. That was followed by uh, an appointment as ambassador in Turkey, accredited to Azerbaijan. I then served as some, did some work as Australia's senior negotiator in the Doha round on agriculture. Also, I did some work uh, um, probably before Korea on the first Australia-Singapore free trade agreement when I was the lead services and investment and intellectual property negotiator. I, um, after I served in Turkey, I went to Lebanon as ambassador, and that was followed by an amb- ambassador position in Warsaw, accredited to Ukraine, Lithuania, and the Czech Republic. So I've had a, a rich and rewarding career. <laughs> and what was it? Which then? I would never, uh, would which I'd never, uh, which I never regret, and would never want to change. Excellent. And what Thanks. was it that encouraged you? Um, to become an ambassador or a a trade negotiator? What was it that really stood out to you as uh, a possible career path? Well, um, when I was at university, my father, who worked for the International Labour Organisation, he uh, could see that uh, Japan would be uh, of importance to Australia and was of growing importance. And uh, he had uh, quite a lot of vision and he suggested, uh, he also believed very much in uh, uh, equality for women. And he uh, suggested I study Japanese and Japanese history and Japanese politics, which I did at university, and I coupled that with Indonesian studies. And the natural path then, if you did something like that, was to apply for the Department of uh, Trade, uh, which I did. Uh, and I'd lived in Japan for probably three or four years. And I enjoyed uh, the overseas work and the, the challenges it always presented. And 
well, that leads nicely into my next question, which is what challenges did you face in, in starting your career and, and, and how should one go about making themselves suitable as a candidate and overcoming those challenges? Well, um, I remember vividly my interview for the Department of Trade and I, I studied up a lot on um, ASEAN and, uh, and trade policy and trade quotas. And, and so I suppose my advice is to uh, do well at university prepare yourself very well for interviews, be very focused on what you wanted. I knew that that was what I wanted uh, to do. And um, stay flexible and adaptable, imaginative, creative, dynamic. They're all qualities you need as a diplomat and especially as an ambassador. You need to be fast, prepared to adapt to change. And I like that uh, milieu. Some people don't like that, but I really enjoyed that. And... um, uh, those qualities are, 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 are essential and you need to be well read and of course interested in across uh, international relations and follow what's going on uh, and enjoy it and enjoy working with teams because one thing you do as a diplomat is you work with teams. You have to work with people uh, both in your embassies and you have to need, know how to get on with people so that you can uh, network and you need to network so that you can uh, advocate Australia's interests and so that you know what's going on in the country you're living in. You have to enjoy those um, skills. Being a diplomat's not just about being an expert on a country or an expert in international relations. The, 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 you need um, strong people skills to be a good diplomat. Now, I'm sure no two days are the same, but I'm wondering if you might be able to shed some light on what a typical day for an ambassador might be like. You're right that no two days are the same. It's such an enjoyable career because it's uh, it's so variable and uh, exciting, and uh, um, you know you feel as if you're pursuing a, a career in the national interest. Now, well, a day can start with breakfast with a business delegation from Australia, with the host government um, business. Sorry, with the host country's business people. It could then move on to going into the office and uh, um, seeing what's happening globally in Australian embassies around the world, what they're reporting. And you'll pick up from that if you haven't got some uh, requests for inst- or instructions from Canberra to pick up a key issue that uh, you think, it's all about judgment, that your uh, um, country you're in would be relevant to what is a, a, a current issue. So you would make an appointment with someone in maybe the foreign ministry or the trade ministry or the environment ministry to see them. And uh, either there are two skills in diplomacy, one's to draw out information. So you might like to find out what, if I was in Poland, what that country's position was maybe in the lead up to a major climate change negotiation, what it might be. Or it might be to advocate uh, Australia's position, which is um, effectively lobbying. You do do... You, there are two functions, one's lobbying and one's drawing out. And then you might have uh, lunch with uh, an upcoming politician who you think might uh, eventually uh, be a decision maker and have influence. That occurs. You That occurs frequently. You never sort of just focus on the existing power structure in a country. You never know where change will come from. And you have to build those relationships. Uh, you might then open an exhibition or um, uh, um, go out to a provincial government to talk to them. 
possibly about a company that wants to set up there, an Australian company, then you might have a dinner, for example, with uh, um, some media people, leading media um, personalities in the country to get a flavour and a feel for, for what's happening in politics in that country. So it's a busy day, and that's a day without a crisis. So enjoyable, <laughs> but a day without a crisis. It certainly sounds like um, one of those roles in which you're effectively always on duty. It's, it's, it's as much a lifestyle as it is a career. That's a very good question. That's, that's, that's very much the case. Uh, when you're a diplomat overseas, you are always on duty. And an ambassador, obviously, it's a 24-hour job and you can often get called um, in the middle of the night, anytime, early morning, uh, you, and you never, you, you're always, rep, you, you're paid and you're appointed to be a, um, the representative of the Australian uh, uh, government and um, the head of state. So your, your job is to represent them. And just going back to, to that typical day, I wonder um, how that compares or how the typical day of an ambassador compares to that of a, a trade negotiator. Is there a lot of crossover there or are they two totally com different worlds? Um, they're both people job. And I could talk to you about uh, effective negotiating. I, I mean, to be an effective negotiator, you don't just sit at a table and put your position forward. You have to know very well uh, your counterpart. You have to be able to talk frankly and candidly with your counterpart. Uh, and um, uh, so you need you need good people skills. You need to manage your team, and you need to advocate your position in a, uh, a polite um, and respectful manner. Um, but negotiating negotiating is a little bit different because you're aiming for an agreement at the table, and uh, you obviously have to compromise to do that. As an ambassador, you'll sometimes conduct some negotiations, maybe on a work and holiday agreement. Um, so there is a, there, are, there are always negotiating elements in being an ambassador or um, uh, I was thinking of, say, the Lebanon War where um, I needed to uh, secure votes to bring the Australians out of Beirut to Turkey and you're negotiating with the Turkish government or the provincial authorities to get votes. So they're not dissimilar, but the ambassadorial job is obviously wider. I see. You're now, of course, the director at the Centre of Political and Diplomatic Studies. Um, what can you tell us about the CPDS and the work that, you, that you're doing there? Well, uh, CPDS started as a London company uh, to develop the foreign ministries in the uh, countries which, which evolved from the breakup of the Soviet Union, um, funded by the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office in the UK. Since then, um, it evolved into a, an organisation which trains uh, primarily diplomats, but not just diplomats, in their core skills through interactive exercises. And what I am now is the company has set up an, a secondary company in, uh, in uh, Melbourne, where I'm based, which um, uh, does this work through uh, the Indo-Pacific. It's... Uh, really very interesting work. It takes me back to uh, what, what were my skills? What, what did I do? Which you used to just take for granted, like how to negotiate, how to network, how to influence. We also uh, work with uh, international organisations and 
for example, in the Pacific Islands, we're doing some work on um, uh, helping aspiring uh, women leaders get the skills to become politicians, business leaders. They're the same sorts of skills as company need, companies need to, such as um, uh, uh, how to uh, think quickly on your feet if you're asked a political question in public, um, how to um, uh, build relationships, um, how, how to make policy and evaluate whether policies actually delivered the outcome you wanted. Uh, those sorts of core skills. Um, and uh, it means uh, I work with foreign ministries uh, around the Indo-Pacific. You get inside those foreign ministries and see them from a completely different um, angle from which you do as a, as, an, as a diplomat. And I really, really enjoy that. And you're working with young diplomats often uh, to build their uh, professional skills. It's terrific. It's a wonderful job. So I suppose just um, like you mentioned a few moments ago in, in, in identifying those future leaders, I suppose at the moment it's, it's about the exact same thing and training those, those future influencers to, um, to be as effective as possible in their roles. Mm-hmm. That, that's absolutely right. I mean, if you wanted, if you're in the Pacific Islands and an, an aspiring woman leader there, and I mention the Pacific Islands because um, there is a need to encourage more uh, women into the leadership positions, um, and that's recognised in that uh, part of the world, is that you need to be able to chair a meeting. You need to know how to chair a meeting, how you guide a meet, how you guide how you guide the participants in a meeting, how you um, stay in command, how you bring it to a conclusion. These are all skills that, uh, if you do them for 40 years, you take them for granted. But... Um, when you think about them, you realise the various elements that make up the skills. And to be a good leader, you need to be able to chair a meeting well. That's how you gain your respect. Now, I suppose moving on to applying those skills in a practical setting, um, you've, of course, played a key role in the initial response to uh, the MH17 crisis in 2014 um, and received mm-hmm. recognition for your work in receiving the Public Service Medal from the Governor-General in 2016. Um, I suppose to start, for those of us who are somewhat unfamiliar, what can you tell us broadly about about that event? Well, it was a, a shocking tragedy uh, for the families involved and uh, um, uh, it's um, something that um, uh, will stay in uh, people's minds for a very, very long time, just uh, the sort of the assault on innocent people that that um, event uh, uh, um, um, was in effect. Uh, so for me, I was the ambassador to uh, Ukraine, accredited to Ukraine. I was actually in Australia returning to Poland from some leave in Australia and I got off the flight in Doha and saw uh, hundreds of messages on my phone and uh, spoke to uh, someone from the embassy in Warsaw who told me about this. So I got to Warsaw and had a three-hour turnaround and then went on to Kiev. And this was on the uh, it was on the seventeenth. It was always the seventeenth of July, twenty fourteen, and I arrived in Kiev um, probably with about um, uh, thirty hours non-stop flight. That's what you do, and this is what I mean. You've got to be resilient uh, to be. Uh, a, an effective um, ambassador and at midnight I met the Dutch and as you know uh, 
298 people killed as a result of that uh, shooting down of that MH17, and uh, the, the vast majority of those people were Dutch, Dutch, people, Dutch citizens and met the Dutch. And uh, you, you have to instantly think, what is your main objective? And your main objective is to find out whether there are any living pe- people alive as a result of the, um, the, the, the plane coming down. Where, um, where are the remains? How do you, how, how, is it secure and safe to collect them? Have they been collected? That's the primary issue because the families want to know where their, um, their loved ones are. And uh, what, what we, the Australian government through the Australian Embassy, what we're doing to um, find out what's happened to those remains. And it subsequently turned out the next day that... Uh, the plane had been shot down by a book missile in um, an area that uh, is was uh, contested um, with um, uh, sort of so-called rebels uh, in a, a very unsafe area, um, remote. Um, and what we didn't know is what had happened to the remains. And our biggest um, objective was to work with the Ukrainian government uh, to. Uh, um, recover those remains, the ones that had been collected under the um, authority of the rebels, and the and the remains and the, the personal effects that were still in the the fields at the place of the crash site. And it was um, you were dealing with a consular crisis and a, and a, and, a, and a political crisis at the same time, a diplomatic crisis at the same time. And the Ukrainian government had only just. Um, um, sort of got on its feet after uh, the Maidan when they had got rid of uh, overturned um, uh, President Yanukovych. So it was still fine. It was still finding its way. This was a, a difficult issue for it to deal with. And how long was the was the period of I suppose from going from becoming aware of the of the event and then mm-hmm. actually being able to get to the site and, and collect remains and and that sort of thing. Well, uh, I'm trying to think. It was pro- to get. It was probably about. It was. It was probably at least five days till we could uh, collect uh, the remains that had been collected by um, sort of emergency forces under the um, authority of the rebels. Uh, they uh, had been put into um, train wagons and. Uh, uh, I went to the place where that train was brought near a town called Kharkiv in Ukraine for, it was a very, very sad moment uh, for collection and then they, and identification and, um, uh, and, and the remains were then sent to The Hague for um, sort of final identification. But at the same time, there were still remains on the, uh, the crash at the crash site, and we needed to get uh, Australian and Dutch uh, uh, qualified um, AFP qualified in the sense for um, that sort of uh, that w- sort of work onto the site, and that took quite some time. I, I can't remember, but it took maybe a week to uh, get that to happen because what had happened is the media were going there, even though it wasn't safe, and sending photos around the world, and there was a lot of um, causing the families distress and a lot of um, sort of impetus for us to secure those remains. It was not easy because the Ukrainian government with an international organisation had to negotiate with the rebels to allow 
the Australian and Dutch uh, police onto the crash site. So, so it's a difficult situation. So it, it sounds then that there was quite a, a concerted effort to, to um, restrict access to this zone in the immediate response to the to the event, to the attack, that's I should say. That's very true. It was a war zone. And um, uh, um, yeah, and I think some of those um, rebels were not completely under control of anybody in particular um, from uh, their headquarters in Donetsk. Uh, so there was an unwillingness to allow uh, the Australian and Dutch police um, and the Malaysian police to enter the, the area, and it took quite some negotiation for that to happen. Given they didn't want to see control of the area, they didn't want uh, international community walking around the area. Uh, it was a it was a, it was a fight for territory at that time. Um, so you know there are a lot of uh, diplomatic levers you have to um, sort of bring into force to uh, achieve that objective. But in all consular consular cases like this, you you really have to keep your your eye on your objective. And what is your objective? Your objective is to um, um, repatriate the remains of um, Australians. Well, that that leads me to the next question, which I suppose was just to understand. I mean, obviously, the, the effect on Australians is is self evident, but um, what implications uh, this attack may have had on Australian diplomacy, um, and I suppose um, our interactions with with other states. Well, what it, it did show us that. Um, that there were so, um, activity was taking place outside what we would call the international order. I mean, it, it's not part of the international order to shoot down passenger planes. So, and it also uh, made us realise that if we're to prevent this sort of activity any further, you have to have an investigation and hold people accountable. Uh, and a, and a, an investigation, an international investigation was undertaken with the Australians and the Dutch and other nationalities uh, to pinpoint where the accountability was so that countries or organisations don't think there is liberty of uh, taking this sort of action and, uh, and get off scot-free. I mean, I'm sure during your times as an ambassador to a, a number of nations, as you pointed out, that you've encountered quite a few crises or unexpected events of, of similar magnitude. I wonder how do your experiences in 2014 compare to, to some of those other examples? Um, say, I mean, you mentioned the Lebanon war um, just a moment ago. Well, um, the crises tend to follow me, as you can see. <laughs> uh, um, the, the other crisis I was involved in was... Uh, in July 2006, so it was eight years earlier, when I was ambassador to Turkey and uh, uh, there was a, a war, it was called the Lebanon War uh, between Lebanon and Israel, and we had to evacuate Australians, m many of whom were um, uh, Lebanese Australians who were back there in the, so the winter holidays, the winter school holidays. So the, the numbers were quite high, and about 2,000 uh, went to Cyprus and about a similar number went to Turkey. The, the problem was is the only way you could evacuate um, the Australians from uh, Beirut, or Lebanon, they came to Beirut, was by sea because uh, the, uh, the, the, the airport was damaged 
and it was dangerous to go by road because there were um, aerial bombings. Um, and you could only go by sea with the concurrence of the um, Israeli Navy, which was helpful in allowing the boats to go through. But the biggest difficulty we had was finding boats. And I remember going down many mornings to the shipping agency in Mersin, which is the city on the Mediterranean in Turkey, where um, we were bringing the Australians to, to plead for boats. And if you look at the history there, there was uh, big issues about securing um, boats. It sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> yeah, it was but it was very difficult to you see all these cruise ships around now. You wonder why we ever had such difficulty, but it was extremely difficult situation to evacuate um, uh, that many people in a very, in a, in a great rush. We had to get them out in a hurry. We did in the end. It was an around-the-clock uh, exercise. All these, both these crises involved many, many um, Australians from agencies in Canberra and from uh, diplomatic posts in the region. We, we would pull them out of the diplomatic posts in the region to help the exercise in Turkey or the, the crisis management in Turkey or the crisis management in Kiev. It's a mobilisation job. Mm. Mm. Um, I wonder, um, Jenny, if you have any final observations for us, anything that you think was missed from my questioning on, on uh, MH17 or even some advice that you may have um, for our listeners who may be future ambassadors themselves? Um, well, I suppose uh, just on, I mentioned to you at the very beginning how much I enjoyed my career. If, if, you, if, you, if you have a, a penchant for uh, interesting places representing Australian interests, the challenge of actually delivering outcomes, you have to be very outcomes focused, flexible, adaptable, and in, in enjoying uh, change, you have to enjoy change and flexibility. It's uh, and you have to be dynamic and energetic. It's it's a one. It, looking back on it, it's just been a, a wonderful career. I've enjoyed it very much. Excellent, yeah. it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Cameron. Thank you for listening to episode six of the Dyson House podcast. Join us next week for episode seven, and don't forget to subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud so that you never miss an episode.